0: Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is The Vampire Maid by Hume Nisbet. It was the exact kind of abode that I had been looking after for weeks, for I was in that condition of mine when absolute renunciation of society was a necessity. I had become diffident of myself and wearied of my kind. A strange unrest was in my blood, a barren dearth in my brains. Familiar objects and faces had grown distasteful to me. I wanted to be alone. This is the mood which comes upon very sensitive and artistic minds when the professor has been overworked or living too long in one groove. It is nature's hints for him to seek pastures new, the sign that a retreat has become needful. If he does not yield, he breaks down and becomes whimsical and a hypochondriac as well as hypocritical. It is always a bad sign when a man becomes overcritical and sincerious about his own or other people's work, for it means that he is losing the vital portions of work, freshness, and enthusiasm. Before I arrived at the dismal stage of criticism, I hastily packed up my knapsack and, taking the train to Westmoreland, I began my tramp in search of solitude, bracing air, and romantic surroundings. Many places I came upon during the early summer wandering that appeared to have almost the required conditions, yet some petty drawback prevented me from deciding. Sometimes it was the scenery that I did not take kindly to. At other places I took sudden antipathies to the landlady or landlord, and felt I would have bore them before a week was spent under their charge. Other places, which might have suited me, I could not have as they did not want a lodger. Fate was driving me to this cottage on the moor, and no one can resist destiny. One day I found myself on a wide and pathless moor near the sea. I had slept the night before at a small hamlet, but that was already eight miles in my rear, and since I had turned my back upon it, I had not seen any signs of humanity. I was alone with a fair sky above me. "'a balmy ozone-filled wind blowing over the stony and heather-clad mounds, "'and nothing to disturb my meditations. "'How far the more stretched I had no knowledge. "'I only knew that by keeping in a straight line I would come to the ocean cliffs, "'then perhaps after a time arrive at some fishing village. "'I had provisions in my knapsack, and being young did not fear a night under the stars.' I was inhaling the delicious summer air, and once more getting back the vigor and happiness I had lost. My city-dried brains were again becoming juicy. Thus, after hour after hour slid past me, with the paces until I had covered about fifteen miles since morning, when I saw before me in the distance a solitary stone-built cottage with roughly slated roof, "'Camp there, if possible,' I said to myself as I quickened my steps towards it. "'To one in search of a quiet, free life, "'nothing could have possibly been more suitable than this cottage. "'It stood on the edge of lofty cliffs, "'with its front door facing the moor "'and the backyard wall overlooking the ocean. "'The sound of the dancing waves struck upon my ears "'like a lullaby as I drew near.' how they would thunder when the autumn gales came on and the seabirds fled shrieking to the shelter of the sedges. A small garden spread in front, surrounded by a dry stone wall just high enough for one to lean lazily upon when inclined. This garden was a flame of color, scarlet predominating, with those other soft shades that cultivated poppies take on in their blooming, for this was all that the garden grew. "'As I approached, taking notice of the singular assortment of poppies "'and the orderly cleanliness of the windows, "'the front door opened, and a woman appeared, "'who impressed me at once as favourable, "'as she leisurely came along the path to the gate, "'and drew it back as if to welcome me. "'She was middle-aged, "'and when young must have been remarkably good-looking. "'She was tall and still shapely, "'with smooth, clear skin.' regular features, and a calm expression that at once gave me a sensation of rest. To my inquiries, she said that she could give me both a sitting and bedroom, and invited me inside to see them. As I looked at her smooth black hair and cool brown eyes, I felt that I would not be too particular about the accommodation. With such a landlady, I was sure to find what I was after here. The rooms surpassed my expectation dainty white curtains and bedding with the perfume of lavender about them a sitting room homely yet cozy without being crowded with a sigh of infinite relief i flung down my knapsack and clinched the bargain she was a widow with one daughter whom i did not see the first day as she was unwell and confined to her own room but on the next day she was somewhat better and then we met The fare was simple, yet it suited me exactly for the time. Delicious milk and butter with homemade scones, fresh eggs and bacon. After a hearty tea, I went early to bed in a condition of perfect contentment with my quarters. Yet happy and tired out as I was, I had by no means a comfortable night. This I put down to the strange bed. I slept, certainly but my sleep was filled with dreams so that I woke late and unrefreshed. A good walk on the moor, however, restored me, and I returned with a fine appetite for breakfast. Certain conditions of mind with aggravating circumstances are required before even a young man can fall in love at first sight, as Shakespeare has shown in his Romeo and Juliet. In the city where many fair faces passed me every hour, I remained like a stoic. Yet no sooner did I enter the cottage after that morning walk than I succumbed instantly before the very weird charms of my landlady's daughter, Adrian Brunel. She was somewhat better this morning and able to meet me at breakfast, for we had our meals together while I was their lodger. Adrian was not beautiful in the strictly classical sense her complexion being too lividly white and her expression too set to be quite pleasant at first sight. Yet, as her mother had informed me, she had been ill for some time, which accounted for that defect. Her features were not regular, her hair and eyes seemed too black with that strangely white skin, and her lips too red for any except the decadent harmonies of an Aubrey Beardsley. Yet my fantastic dreams of the preceding night, with my morning walk, had prepared me to be enthralled by this modern poster-like invalid. The loneliness of the moor, with the singing of the ocean, had gripped my heart with a wistful longing. The incongruity of those flaunting and effervescent poppy flowers, dashing the giddy tents in the face of that sober heath, touched me with a shiver as I approached the cottage. And lastly, that weird embodiment of startling contrast completed my subjugation. She rose from her chair as her mother introduced her, and smiled while she held out her hand. I clasped that soft snowflake, and as I did, so faint a thrill tingled over me and rested on my heart, stopping for the moment its beating. This contact seemed also to have affected her as it did me. A clear flush like a white flame lit up her face so that it glowed as if an alabaster lamp had been lit. Her black eyes became softer and more humid as our glances crossed and her scarlet lips grew moist. She was a living woman now, while before she had seemed half a corpse— She permitted her white slender hand to remain in mine longer than most people do at an introduction. And then she slowly withdrew it, still regarding me with steadfast eyes for a second or two afterwards. Fathomless, velvety eyes these were. Yet, before they were shifted from mine, they appeared to have absorbed all my willpower and made me her abject slave. They looked like deep, dark pools of clear water yet they filled me with a fire and deprived me of strength. I sank to my chair almost as languidly as I had risen from my bed that morning. Yet I made a good breakfast, and although she hardly tasted anything, this strange girl rose much refreshed and with a slight glow of color on her cheeks, which improved her so greatly that she appeared younger and almost beautiful. I had come here seeking solitude, but since I had seen Adrian, it seemed as if I had come only for her. She was not very lively. Indeed, thinking back, I cannot recall any spontaneous remark of hers. She answered my questions by monosyllables and left me to lead in words. Yet she was insinuating and appeared to lead my thoughts in her direction and to speak to me with her eyes. I cannot describe her minutely. I only know that from the first glance and touch she gave me, I was bewitched and could think of nothing else. It was a rapid, distracting, and devouring infatuation that possessed me. All day long, I followed her about like a dog. Every night, I dreamed of that white, glowing face, those steadfast black eyes, those moist, scarlet lips and each morning I rose more languid than I had the day before. Sometimes I dreamt that she was kissing me with those red lips, while I shivered at the contact of her silky black tresses as they covered my throat. Sometimes that we were floating in the air, her arms about me and her long hair enveloping us both like an inky cloud while I lay supine and helpless. She went with me after breakfast on the first day to the moor, and before we came back I had spoken my love and received her assent. I held her in my arms and had taken her kisses in answer to mine, nor did I think it strange that all this happened so quickly. She was mine, or rather, I was hers without a pause. I told her it was fate that had sent me to her, for I had no doubts about my love and she replied that I had restored her to life. Acting upon Adrian's advice, and also from a natural shyness, I did not inform her mother how quickly matters had progressed between us. Yet although we both acted as circumspectly as possible, I had no doubt Mrs. Brunell could see how engrossed we were in each other. Lovers are not unlike ostriches in their modes of concealment. I was not afraid of asking Brunel for her daughter. She already showed her partiality towards me and had bestowed upon me some confidences regarding her own position in life, and I therefore knew that, so far as social position was concerned, there could be no real objection to our marriage. They lived in this lonely spot for the sake of their health and kept no servant, because they could not get any to take service so far away from Mother Humanity. My coming had been opportune and welcome to both mother and daughter. For the sake of decorum, however, I resolved to delay my confession for a week or two and trust some favorable opportunity of doing it discreetly. Meantime, Adrian and I passed our time in a thoroughly idle and lotus-eating style. Each night I retired to bed, meditating starting work next day. Each morning I rose languid from those disturbing dreams with no thought for anything outside my love. She grew stronger every day, while I appeared to be taking her place as the invalid. Yet I was more frantically in love than ever, and only happy when with her. She was my lone star, my only joy, my life. We did not go great distances, for like best to lie on the dry heath and watch her glowing face and intense eyes while I listened to the surging of the distant waves. It was love made me lazy, I thought, for unless a man has all he longs for beside him, he is apt to copy the domestic cat and bask in the sunshine. I had been enchanted quickly. My disenchantment came as rapidly, although it was long before the poison left my blood. One night, about a couple of weeks after my coming to the cottage, I had returned after a delicious moonlike walk with Adrian. The night was warm and the moon at full. Therefore, I left my bedroom window open to let in the little air there was. I was more than usually tired, so that I had only strength enough to remove my boots and coat before I flung myself wearily on the coverlet and almost instantly fell asleep without tasting the nightcap drop that was constantly placed on the table, and which I had always drained thirstily. I had a ghastly dream this night. I saw I saw a monster bat, with the face and tresses of Adrian, fly into the open window and fasten its white teeth and scarlet lips on my arm. I tried to beat away the horror but could not, for I seemed chained down and thralled also with drowsy delight as the beast sucked my blood with a gruesome rapture. I looked out dreamily and saw a line of dead bodies of young men lying on the floor, each with a red mark on their arm, on the same part where the vampire was then sucking me. I remembered having seen and wondered at such a mark on my own arm for the past fortnight. In a flash, I understood the reason for my strange weakness, and at the same moment, a sudden prick of pain roused me from my dreamy pleasure. The vampire, in her eagerness, had bitten a little too deeply that night, unaware that I had not tasted the drugged draught. As I woke, I saw her fully revealed by the midnight moon, with her black tresses flowing loosely, with her red lips glued to my arm. With a shriek of terror, I dashed her backwards, getting one last glimpse of her savage eyes, glowing white face, and blood-stained red lips. Then I rushed out into the night, moved on by my fear and hatred nor did I pause in my mad flight until I had left miles between me and the accursed cottage on the moor. The End Thank you and merci beaucoup for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts, or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail dot com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon, where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own. Special treats. Rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.